Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 116, George R. Noyes' Explanation of Isaiah 9-6 and John 1-1. Before we get to the main event, a quick announcement and also a listener question. The announcement is that an important new book about Christology has just been released. It's called Son of God, and it's a three-views book between a Trinitarian, a quote Arian, and a quote Socinian. Is Jesus one-third of the Trinity? That is to say, one of the three divine persons within the tripersonal God, one usia with the Father and the Holy Spirit, equally divine with both. Is Jesus a being who existed long before he became a human and is in some sense divine, but is lesser than the Father, maybe even a creature of the Father? That's the quote Arian view. Or is Jesus the human Messiah, the virginally conceived man anointed by God, and now exalted, so worthy of worship. You've got three very nicely written chapters advancing one of those three theses, and then the other two respond to them and critique them. The Trinitarian is a young theologian named Dr. Lee Irons. The Arian is a gentleman named Danny Andre Dixon. And the Socinian is Dr. Dustin Smith, who's been on the Trinity's podcast before in episodes 61 and 62. The next several weeks of the Trinity's podcast will be my interviews with these three authors, and I do my best to hit them all with tough questions and to really help you get deep into the issue with them. And so you might want to get a copy of the book at some point and read along, and you can hear the author in his own voice discussing with me as you're reading his chapter and hearing him argue with the other authors. So that'll start next Monday, December 14th. Second, I got a reader question from Miguel. Do you in any of the episodes go through the differences between your, that is a biblical Unitarian views, and Jehovah's Witnesses? No, Miguel, I haven't done that yet. I haven't got around to it. I probably will someday. Bizarrely, sometimes people angrily demand to know if I'm a Jehovah's Witness. No, I'm not. I never have been. I've not been significantly influenced by Jehovah's Witnesses. I've had a few acquaintances and friends who have been Jehovah's Witnesses. And I have some current friends who are biblical Unitarians who are former Jehovah's Witnesses. And in general, they tend to be lifelong students of the scriptures. That's generally why they quit being a Jehovah's Witness. In brief, I would say the biggest difference between Jehovah's Witnesses and biblical Unitarians And by the way, not all biblical Unitarians call themselves that. Some of them prefer to call themselves one God believers or Christian monotheists. But anyway, the biggest difference between biblical Unitarians and Jehovah's Witnesses is the Jehovah's Witnesses are centrally controlled by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society in Brooklyn, New York, and a small set of leaders there. So they, unlike biblical Unitarians, are beholden to a very particular set of scriptural interpretations, really an idiosyncratic set of views in some ways. As to Christology, they believe that Jesus pre-existed, and then he became a human, and they believe that Jesus is the same person as the archangel Michael. This is an idiosyncratic view, and you basically won't find any other Unitarian Christians holding this view. There are other specific practices that are unique to them, like refusing blood transfusions and their kind of hardcore dedication to going door to door, which I think is kind of exhausting and almost impossible to keep up with long term. They kind of grind people out. There's a kind of legalistic mindset and a kind of top-down control that's unique to them. There are some similarities to biblical Unitarians. Some biblical Unitarians share their scruples against celebrating Christmas or uh, other holidays. So there are quite a few practical differences. What makes both Biblical Unitarians and Jehovah's Witnesses Unitarians is just their common thesis that the one God just is the Father himself. I hope that helps. I hope we can talk more about the Jehovah's Witnesses in some future episodes, maybe with some people who know a lot more about it than I do maybe even a former member, but I hope that's at least a little bit helpful. So on to our main event. Who was George R. Noyes? 
American George R. Noyes was born in 1798, and he died in 1868 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He was a Unitarian minister and a scholar at Harvard University. Well, actually, at the time, it was Harvard College. He graduated from Harvard in the year 1818, where he studied divinity. He was licensed to preach in 1822, served as a tutor from 1823 to 27, and then in that same year was ordained pastor of the First Unitarian Society of Petersham, Massachusetts. He got his Doctor of Divinity degree in 1839, and from 1840 until his death in 1868, he was Hancock Professor of Hebrew and Dexter Lecturer on Biblical Literature in the Theological Department of Harvard College. His main specialty was Hebrew. He produced his own translations of the Book of Job, of the Psalms, of the Prophets, of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, and even a version of the New Testament, although it was a revision of an existing translation. This short work that I'm going to present for you today is called Explanation of Isaiah 9-6 and John 1-1, second edition dated 1833. It's published in Tracts of the American Unitarian Association, first series, volume 7, from 1834, published in Boston. In the first part of this book, he explains a famous prediction in Isaiah that I always remember in conjunction with this famous piece of music. to Jesus, it seems to be calling him mighty God. That's very similar to a phrase which in the New Testament seems to only be applied to the Father, which is the Almighty. It sounds then like it's calling Jesus God Almighty. And in the New Testament, we know who the Father is. That's the one true God. Is it then saying that Jesus is God, that he is the Father? If not, what is it saying? And what about the famous passage in another chapter of Isaiah, chapter 7, this prediction of a baby to be born who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Isn't that calling Jesus God? In the first half of this short book or tract, he explains what's actually going on in these passages. And you'll see how a Hebrew scholar looks at these passages. In the second part, he explains much of the first chapter of John, focusing on the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isn't this saying that Jesus always existed and that Jesus is God, and yet that he's somehow also distinct from God in a mysterious manner? He doesn't think so. He prefers an interpretation that I've discussed briefly a couple of previous times on the Trinity's podcast. This was in episodes 70 and 71, episode 70 being my presentation, The One God and His Son, according to John, and 71 being Is Proverbs 8 about Jesus, part 1. And I think that noise shows how very well motivated this interpretation is. It's not an ad hoc thing thrust upon the text in order to defend a precious theological theory. On this interpretation, the Word is not Jesus. 
It's not the pre-human Jesus, which then unites with the human nature. Well, what is the Word? As you'll hear, Dr. Noyes takes his cue from earlier scriptures in the Old Testament and in the Apocrypha. And after his comments on John 1, he gives what I would call a deception argument against the traditional Catholic two natures doctrine about Jesus. I don't agree with everything in it. Like anyone, he is to some extent a product of his times and has some unexamined assumptions that maybe need examining. I do think, though, that it has some insights into these famous passages. After you listen, let us know what you think. Upload some audio feedback for us, or comment on the blog post, or in the Trinity's podcast Facebook group. Here, then, in its entirety, is this two-part work by George R. Noyes. Explanation of Isaiah 9-6 and John 1-1 by George R. Noyes, 2nd edition, 1833. Part 1. Explanation of Isaiah 9-6 Isaiah 9-6 For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This passage has been commonly understood as predicting the birth of Jesus Christ. It is true that some critics of considerable eminence, among whom is the celebrated Grotius, have considered the passage as relating in its primary sense to Hezekiah, the son of the impious King Ahaz, in whose reign it was pronounced. But it is not my purpose to discuss the question of the proper application of the passage. Without deciding for or against the common application of it, I shall endeavor to explain it in reference to Jesus and to fix your thoughts on those points of his character and office which the several expressions in it may suggest. The expressions in the passage are evidently borrowed from a style of royalty. They indicate the birth of a prince, the heir of a throne. Applied to Jesus, they represent him as a king and the establishment of his religion as the setting up of a kingdom. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son, that is, a king's son, is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulder, that is, he shall bear the burden of government as a load is usually borne upon the shoulder. Or the government may be said to be upon his shoulder because the purple robe or the regal scepter, the emblems of government, usually rested upon the shoulder. It is manifest that our Savior is called a king only in a figurative sense, for how little did his character or condition resemble those of any sovereign that ever occupied a throne, in respect to the character of the governor, the nature of the government, the manner in which it was established and is continued, and the benefits resulting to the governed, how different is the kingdom of Jesus from the kingdoms of this world? What are the benefits to be derived from the best of human governments compared with that rest of the soul, which is found by those who take upon themselves the yoke of the Prince of Life? What is security to natural life compared with the everlasting happiness of that part of ourselves which shall never see death? What is the liberty that can be guaranteed by the most perfect civil government compared with the glorious liberty from degrading habits, from tyrannical passions, from oppressive anxieties and tormenting fears which belongs to the voluntary followers of the Prince of Peace? And what are the rewards which a human government can confer compared with a victory over death and the grave? and an immortality incorruptible, undefiled, that never fades away. Well did the Savior exclaim, My kingdom is not of this world. Another lesson you may draw from the expression, the government shall be upon his shoulder, is the iniquity of the usurpation of the government of the church by sinful mortals. God has made Jesus head over all things to the church. Let then the government rest upon his shoulder, where the pen of the prophet declared it should rest. Let not the professed subjects of Jesus presume to dictate what men shall believe, or what they shall reject in order to enjoy the privileges of his spiritual kingdom. The head of the church is abundantly able to protect all its interests, and to bear all the burdens and discharge all the duties of its government. Let not then vain men imagine defects in the government of Jesus, let them not act on the supposition that he has entrusted his disciples with too much freedom. Let him not dare to abridge the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. Let him not dare to stand before that door which Jesus has left open, saying, Behold, I have set before you an open door. 
with a creed in one hand and an anathema in the other, and exclude the guests whom Jesus invites to enter. My friends, there is reason enough for these cautions. It is a melancholy and awful truth that, even in this commonwealth, the holy ordinance of the supper, the memorial of him who came to give us perfect freedom, is made an instrument of spiritual slavery. It is a solemn truth that many of the churches around us are nothing less than prisons of the human soul, yes, the very graves of free inquiry. This is the case in all those churches where the rejection of an opinion once professed is treated as a crime and stigmatized as the breach of a solemn covenant and the violation of an oath subjecting the offender to censure and exclusion. The prophet goes on to declare that his name shall be called Wonderful. By an idiom of the Hebrew language, the word name, it may be observed, is here redundant. His name shall be called is the same as he shall be called. So to call upon the name of the Lord is the same as to call upon the Lord. It is evident that the prophet did not intend to predict the proper name of the Savior, but only those qualities and circumstances of his character which should merit and receive the splendid epithets contained in the passage. He shall be called Wonderful. The propriety of this epithet is seen at once by everyone who remembers anything of the birth, the youth, the spirit and character, the good deeds and wise instructions, the dignity and the humiliation, the life and death of Jesus. He was wonderful in being welcomed into the world by the homage of sages and the songs of angels, in his increase in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man, in his conversation with the wise men of his nation when only twelve years old, in receiving the Holy Spirit without measure, and in being addressed by the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Wonderful in all the words which he spoke, and all the acts which he performed, in his superiority to his nation and his age, in the vast extent of his conceptions, the sublimity of his doctrines, and the unrivaled excellence of his precepts, in piety to God and benevolence to man, and above all, in the generous sacrifice of his life for the salvation of the world. In the miraculous phenomena that accompanied his death, in his speedy return from the mansions of the dead, and in his glorious ascension to the right hand of God. Well then might the pen of inspiration predict that he would be called Wonderful. The next epithet applied to him is that of Counselor, and the propriety of this epithet will appear evident when it is considered what was the source of his wisdom and what the character of his instructions. He is a Counselor because the Spirit of the Lord rested upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He was in the bosom of the Father. He drank in wisdom from the pure fountain of eternal truth. In him were hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What question is there worthy of an immortal being to ask which the great counselor will not answer? He may not, indeed, throw light upon your schemes for laying up the treasures which the moth and rust may corrupt, but he will tell you how to use them so that when they fail, you will be received into everlasting habitations. He may not gratify your curiosity in questions of doubtful disputation or communicate that knowledge of the material world which the faithful exertion of your own faculties will enable you to acquire, but ask of him the character of the great being who is the arbiter of your condition in this world and the future. Ask him the origin, the nature, the duty, and the destination of man. Ask of him the source and the design of the blessings you receive and of the calamities that befall you. Ask him how a sinner can be reconciled to God and gain the favor of him whose hand moves the springs of your happiness or misery. Ask him what will become of you when your bodies shall be mingled with dust and scattered to the winds of heaven. In regard to all these questions, the great counselor will give you more satisfaction than all the mighty masters of philosophy that preceded, yes, more than all that have followed him. To this great counselor, my friends, apply for instruction. Like Mary, sit at his feet. Listen to all the words which proceed from his mouth. Follow him with his disciples from place to place. Witness all his miracles. Observe all his conduct. Treasure up all his declarations. And in life and in death, in time and in eternity, 
Believe me, you will find him a counselor whom you will never repent to have consulted and whom you will never repent to have followed. The passage we are considering, according to the common translation, goes on to declare that the child that was to be born should be called the mighty God. Upon this expression, I remark first that for the particle the before the terms mighty God and everlasting Father, there is no foundation in the original, and I am happy to observe it expelled from the passage in a recent translation of it in the most learned Orthodox journal in this country. Leaving out the particle the, the passage will read, He shall be called Mighty God. If this translation be correct, the meaning is that Jesus, in his regal character, as the Messiah, the Son of God, and the head of the church, should possess such mighty power and such superior wisdom that he should be called, as it were, a God upon earth. It was not uncommon, as is well known in ancient times, to give the name of God to persons distinguished by the dignity of their stations, or the importance of their office, or the excellence of their character. Thus Moses, on account of the miracles he was instrumental in performing, is said to have been a god to Pharaoh. And if Moses might be called God without danger of being identified with the creator of the universe, a greater than Moses might be called mighty God by a similar use of language. So kings and princes are called gods, as, I have said you are gods, and all of you children of the Most High. Psalm 82, 6. So our Savior observes that, He called them gods, to whom the word of God came. John 10, 35. That the epithet mighty God was used to denote qualities of character or dignity of station, and not to designate or name the person to which it is applied, is also evident from the following consideration. All the other epithets applied to the child in this verse confessedly denote qualities of character or circumstances of condition. The terms wonderful, counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace, are all used to indicate what sort of a person the child should be, not who he should be. And it is extremely improbable that in the midst of four epithets, all descriptions of qualities of character, a fifth should be inserted, giving him a proper name, or declaring who he should be. This would be a violation of propriety of language, not to be expected from Isaiah. Jesus then, according to the Jewish use of language, might be called Mighty God on account of his miraculous powers and marvelous wisdom and glorious exaltation, in perfect consistency with the truth that he could do nothing of himself, that all power was given to him, and that all his fullness was derived from the good pleasure of the Father. Thus, the prophet is not the author of a proposition so contradictory as that a child to be born and destined to sit on the throne of David should be the eternal creator, the governor of the universe. It is only a strange inattention to the use of language among the Hebrews that will allow such a proposition to be drawn from the passage. The term in Isaiah 7.14, Emmanuel, God with us, I regard as an expression somewhat different from that under consideration. The emphatic word in that symbolical name appears to me to be the particle with, which has the same meaning as in Psalm 46.11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The true meaning of this symbolical name would appear more clearly if it were translated, God will help us. This name was undoubtedly given to a child. That was to be a proof to Ahaz, king of Judah, of the speedy deliverance of his kingdom from the invasion of the combined forces of the kings of Israel and Syria. Of course, it was applied originally to a child to be born in the time of the prophet Isaiah. For, to use the language of Professor Stewart of Andover, 
How could the birth of Jesus, which happened 742 years afterwards, be a sign to Ahaz that within three years his kingdom was to be freed from his enemies? Such a child, it would seem, was born at that period, for in chapter 8, verses 8 and 10, he is twice referred to as if then present, or at least then living. Back then to Isaiah 9. I have thus far considered the expression mighty God to be a correct translation of the original and endeavored to explain it in consistency with the derived and dependent nature of Jesus. It is a fact, however, that the Hebrew word rendered God in this verse, and which is often correctly rendered so in other parts of the scriptures, has another meaning and one more appropriate in this verse than that of the common version. It denotes a man of strength, a hero, or potentate. The very same word is applied to Nebuchadnezzar in Ezekiel 31.11, where he is styled the Mighty One of the Nations. Here the original word might be rendered God of the Nations, with as much propriety so far as the word itself is concerned as in the verse under consideration. In Ezekiel 32.21, the same word in the plural is translated strong, the strong amongst the mighty. Here too the translation might be the gods among the mighty. The same word is rendered the mighty in Job 41.25. When it rises up, the mighty are terrified. And it appears to me that a similar translation is more proper here, where the expressions are evidently borrowed from the language of royalty and the Messiah is supposed to be represented in his kingly character. In this way, Martin Luther, who cannot be suspected of any sectarian bias, translated the word in his German version of the Bible. In place of the terms mighty God, he has mighty hero. The same way the first living Hebrew scholar in the world, the German Gesenius, renders the word. This expression, therefore, applied to the Messiah, declares that he should be called mighty hero or mighty potentate in reference to his exaltation to be a prince and a savior anointed by God with the oil of gladness above his fellows, and whom every tongue must confess to be Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the same time, if any prefer the common translation, mighty God, the expression may be explained in the matter above mentioned in perfect consistency with the derived power and entire dependence of Jesus upon his Father and our Father, his God and our God. John 20:17. The next epithet applied in the verse to the child that was to be born is that of everlasting father, by which is meant that he would be the perpetual father, benefactor, or guardian of his people. In this explanation of the expression everlasting father, I am glad to have the support of Professor Stewart of Andover. In a similar, though a less important sense, a good prince or ruler who has thus conferred great benefits on the land of his birth is said to have been the father of his country. The term everlasting has no reference to the past, but only to the future. It means never-ending or perpetual, as in the phrases everlasting happiness, everlasting mercy. Jesus, then, according to the promise, will be the perpetual father of his people. He will watch over the interests of the church as a father over the interests of his children. He will strengthen their weakness. He will console their sorrows. He will animate their fainting spirits and he will ever make intercession for them before the throne of God. This prophecy that he will be the everlasting or perpetual father of his people appears to me nearly the same thing with the promise, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. That is, I will always aid you and interpose my good offices on your behalf. Whether Jesus is personally employed on earth as the invisible agent of the Most High for the benefit of the church, or only by means of the instructions, hopes, and consolations of his religion as their intercessor in heaven is a question upon which there may be different opinions. 
In either case, we may regard him with interest and affection as the everlasting or perpetual friend of his people. The last epithet bestowed upon Jesus in the passage is that of Prince of Peace. And a Prince of Peace he was in three different senses. First, he came to make us at peace with God, to reconcile us to his Father, to purify us from those sins that separated us from our God. Thus it is said by the Apostle, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he is the Prince of Peace as he came to promote peace between man and man, to subdue those passions from whence come wars and fightings, and to establish in the souls of men these feelings of justice, kindness, forgiveness, and humility, which are calculated to maintain perpetual peace. Only let nations and individuals be deeply imbued with the principles of the Prince of Peace, and the sword will be beaten into the plowshare, and the spear into the pruning hook, and men will learn war no more. Lastly, he is the Prince of Peace, as he is the author of inward peace or tranquility of heart. It is only by coming to him and imbibing his piety, his benevolence, his meekness and lowliness of heart, that we can find rest unto our souls. Thus alone can we find peace, the peace which the world can neither give nor take away. It is pride, selfishness, irreligion, envy, malice, and revenge that are the sources of most of the misery of the human heart. When these demons have been expelled from the soul through the aid of Christian precepts, hopes, and promises, and when faith, hope, and charity have taken their place, then, at length, we shall be at peace with God, at peace with man, and at peace with our own souls. This glorious effect Jesus came to produce, and he has produced it in the hearts of thousands. Well, then, may he be styled the Prince of Peace. Such is the character of him upon whose shoulders the government of the church is laid. He is wonderful in all his attributes. He is a counselor who resolves all our doubts and who alone can show us the way to eternal happiness. He is a mighty potentate who is endowed with all the powers necessary for the establishment and security of his kingdom. He is the everlasting or perpetual father of those who put themselves under his government. And he is the prince of peace to all his obedient followers. What reason have we as Christians to rejoice that such a child was born, that such a son was given, one that can dissipate our darkness and illuminate our minds, can calm the conscience and make us at peace with God, with man, and with our own souls, can free us from the misery of tyrannical passions, can encourage with paternal tenderness our feeble steps, can deliver us from the sting of death and the terrors of the grave, and discover to us immortal happiness. With what alacrity should we embrace the privilege of being subjects of his kingdom? With what fidelity should we want to follow him as the captain of our salvation? With what ardent zeal should we heed his admonitions, listen to his instructions, mark his example, and obey his laws? And with what earnest gratitude should we thank God, who laid help upon one that was so mighty to save? With what joy should we regard the fulfillment of this prophecy? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty Potentate, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Part 2. Explanation of John 1.1 John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
In the following explanation, I shall maintain that the Word of God is no more a distinct person from God than the Word of a man is a distinct person from the man. Jesus spoke as no one else had spoken and performed what no one else had performed. His discourses and his deeds were superhuman. The evangelist, John, in the beginning of his gospel, accounts for the supernatural character of the discourses and actions of Jesus. This he does by declaring that the Word, that is, the energy or the wisdom and power of God, was united with Jesus or dwelt in him. But how is it that the term Word denotes the energy or the wisdom and power of God? Perhaps we may answer this question without going beyond the sacred volume for help. In the first chapter of Genesis, the creation in its successive stages is said to have been the result of the Word or command of God. God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1.3 So in the book of Psalms we read, He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Psalm 33.9 And again, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. Psalm 33.6 So in regard to other operations of God, we read, He spoke, and the locusts came. And again, He sends forth His commandment upon the earth, and His word runs very swiftly. Psalm 147.15 This, then, was the ancient mode in which the operations of the deity in the world were represented, namely as proceeding from a word or command. But when the Jews began to affix an exact meaning to expressions of Scripture, they could not help perceiving that it was not by a literal, audible word or command that the divine operations were performed. They could not help perceiving that the ascription of a real voice or tongue or lips to the deity was inconsistent with his character as an immaterial spirit. How natural, then, was it for them to give a new and more spiritual meaning to the term word? How natural that they should understand by the term that energy or those attributes by which a word or command of God would be executed. I believe that the fact corresponds to the presumption here stated, and that in the time of the evangelist John, the word logos or word was used by many to denote that energy or those attributes of God which are manifested in his operations in the world, that is, the power and wisdom of God. In the last verse quoted from the Psalms, where the word of God is said to run very swiftly, we find the term so far personified as to have life and action attributed to it. In some of the apocryphal writings, we may observe the same thing in a still higher degree. Thus, speaking of the destruction of the Egyptians, the writer says, Your almighty word leapt down from heaven, from his royal throne, a fierce warrior into the midst of a land of destruction. Wisdom of Solomon 18.15 In the book of Wisdom, chapter 9, verse 1, the term is used as parallel with wisdom, that is, as having a similar signification with it. This writer uses the language, God of my fathers and Lord of mercy, who has made all things with your word and ordained man through your wisdom. Thus, the term word came to have a new and more spiritual meaning than originally belonged to it and was used to denote the energy or the power and wisdom of God manifested in the creation and instruction of the world, which in popular language used to be represented as the result of his word or command. The evangelist uses the term word as denoting neither an articulate sound nor yet as a real person or intelligent agent, but a portion of the divine attributes personified. In the same way, the term wisdom is personified in the eighth chapter of the book of Proverbs, and indeed the term word itself in Hebrews 4.12, where it is said to be quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is important to keep in mind that the word is represented as a figurative, though not a real person. Otherwise, this explanation may appear to be harsh. But anyone who attends to the above-mentioned personification of wisdom, and to the personification of sin, death, and the grave, in the writings of St. Paul and in the Apocalypse, 
may find this explanation attended with at least as little difficulty as any other. In order then to convey to a certain class of his readers the idea of a spiritual teacher endowed with divine wisdom and power, St. John declares that the word, in the sense above ascribed to it, was, in the Messiah, manifested to the world in a human form. In the beginning, that is, before the foundation of the world, was the word, that is, the divine power and wisdom, and the word was with God, that is, was always in his presence, ready to execute his purposes. And the word was God, that is, had no existence independent of and separate from him, but was an essential part of the divine nature. By it, in other words, by this word or divine power and wisdom, were all things made, verse 3, and by the same was an influence exerted to enlighten and save the world which influenced the world long resisted, so in verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. At length, this word, or divine power and wisdom, was manifest to the world in a human form, and enabled the Messiah to perform those miracles and teach those doctrines which could have proceeded only from the power and wisdom of God. The advantage of this explanation is that it supposes the term God to be used in the same sense in both cases where it occurs in the first verse. This is not the case on the Trinitarian hypothesis or any other which makes the term word denote a real person. For in this case, the verse would read, In the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father and Spirit, and the Son was the Father and Spirit. It would imply that a person might be said to be with another and yet be that other person with whom he was just said to be. Whereas if we understand the word to denote the divine energy or the divine power and wisdom by which his operations in the world are performed, nothing can be more proper than to assert that wisdom and strength are with God and that they are God, that is, have no existence separate from him but are a part of the divine nature. So, for instance, Job 12.13, With God are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. In regard to the expression, The Word became flesh, it may be remarked that the Trinitarian cannot understand it more literally than it was understood in the above explanation. For he will not pretend that the eternal spirit was actually changed into flesh and blood. He will say that the Supreme Being was united with Jesus without undergoing any change. So I maintain that the Word, in the sense above explained, was united with Jesus and enabled Him to act and to teach, as He could not have done, had not the Spirit of God been poured upon Him without measure. It may also be remarked that, according to the above explanation, the Word and the Spirit of God are used by the evangelist as nearly equivalent. For both these explanations denote the divine power and wisdom to which Jesus referred his works and doctrines. So in John 3, 34 and 35, He whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has placed all things in his hands. So in the Old Testament, the creation is sometimes ascribed to the Word and sometimes to the Spirit of God. For example, Job 26.13 His spirit made the heavens beautiful, and his power pierced the gliding serpent. From the circumstance that the evangelist uses the term word only once, and the term spirit frequently to denote the source of the supernatural character of Jesus, we may infer that the latter term was most common and most familiar to him as having been used by Jesus, and that he used the term word in the beginning of the gospel in reference to some question that had arisen concerning it, or as likely to be better understood than the term spirit by a portion of those whom he addressed. In conclusion, I remark that, while I am free to confess that I have yet some doubts remaining in regard to the exact explanation of this, as of other passages of Scripture, Yet, I have a deep conviction that the Trinitarian exposition of it is attended with far greater difficulties than any other, even if we look not beyond the passage itself. 
But when I take into view the doctrine that shines on every page of the Gospel of St. John concerning the derived and dependent powers of Jesus, the Trinitarian hypothesis appears to me to be at an immeasurable distance from the truth. It is indeed said by Trinitarians that those passages which represent Jesus as dependent upon and inferior to the Father are to be understood of his human nature. When we urge the passage, The Father is greater than I, John 19.28, or that of another evangelist, No man knows that day and that hour, not even the angels that are in heaven, neither the Son, but only the Father, Mark 13.32, they reply that it is only as man that he says that the Father is greater than he, and that it is only as man that he knew not the day and the hour, etc. But as has been observed by a distinguished writer, in order to apply this answer to the passages which represent Jesus Christ as inferior to his Father, it ought to appear very clearly from Scripture that there are two natures in Christ, one divine and the other human, but this is what does not appear from the sacred writings. There is not a single passage which obliges us to regard Jesus Christ as the supreme God. There is nothing, therefore, which authorizes us to make this distinction. One cannot apply this distinction to the passages of Scripture in question without doing violence to them, without attributing to them a mode of speaking unknown to all languages and contrary to all the rules of language. In effect, by these rules, one may indeed attribute to a whole what agrees to some one of its parts, but one cannot deny of a whole what agrees to one of the parts which compose it. For example, I can say of a man that he thinks and that he is extended, because there is in him something that thinks and that is extended, but I cannot say of a man he does not think, he is not extended, under pretense that there is in him something that does not think and something that is not extended. Thus, supposing that Jesus Christ be the supreme God, he cannot say that he knows not the day of judgment, as on this supposition he knows it in an infallible manner by his divinity. He cannot say in a general manner and without any limitation that this day is unknown to him without violating the truth. The language which they have made Jesus Christ employ in supposing that he had present to his mind this imaginary distinction resembles that which I might hold if, when interrogated by a judge concerning facts which are very well known to me, I should reply that they were unknown to me under pretense that my body had no knowledge of them. It is as if, when one asked me if I had seen such a person, I should answer no, because when I saw him I had one of my eyes shut and did not see him with that eye. It is as if, when one should desire me to write upon some subjects, I should reply that I was not able to write, because my mind could not hold a pen. There is nobody who does not see how absurd such a mode of speaking would be. If we examine the passages to which the Orthodox apply this distinction, we shall find that it cannot take place. In effect, Jesus Christ is most frequently represented here as the Son of God, that is, according to the system of the Orthodox, as God. One cannot therefore say that it is as man that Jesus Christ speaks on these occasions. For example, in the passage we have already quoted, Jesus Christ says, As for that day and that hour, no man knows it, not the angels who are in heaven, nor even the Son, but the Father. No man knows it, neither the angels nor even the Son, that is, not Christ himself, considered as exalted above the angels, considered as the Son of God 
as God according to that system. One cannot therefore say that it was as a man that Jesus Christ speaks in this passage. He excludes even this when he says, no man. In effect, when the disciples addressed this request to Jesus Christ, tell me when these things will come to pass, they did not merely ask him what he might know of them by lights natural to humanity. They addressed themselves to him as the Son of God. They wished to enjoy a share of that knowledge which Jesus might possess in this regard in consequence of his intimate union with the deity. It follows, therefore, that Jesus Christ must be absolutely ignorant of the time of the last judgment to answer as he did, and that there is not in Jesus Christ those two natures which serve for the basis of that distinction they have systematically framed, and that this distinction must be vain and chimerical. This week's Thinking Music has been a part of a live recording of Handel's Messiah by my late father, David Tuggy. As it's not been officially released, I probably shouldn't make it available for public download. Did you know that there is a Trinity's Podcast Facebook group? As of today's episode, it has 293 members, and there are a lot of wonderful people in there, a lot of very thoughtful, sincere Christians, Christians who hold various views about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you're welcome to join us there. Of course, you're also always welcome to comment on the blog post for any episode as well. But if, like many people, Facebook has eaten most of your online time, please do consider including us. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.